Let me say this is the 20th of August and this is side three. I think we we um, kind of finished yesterday and you're still involved with the art looting activity. Yes. Was there any more that you wanted to say about that? Because it was, you hadn't really come yes. back to this country. You're still still, still in left Europe. You in yes. Europe. Yeah, well, right. uh, this was an interesting project because of the specialized nature of it and because of the relationship with OSS. Uh, I think I've just described uh, fairly clearly what happened and of course the end result of all of our work it was, uh, the best part of it was that the works of art did get back to the country from which they'd been taken. Right. And at the end of my stay, uh, when I was in Paris, I had the great pleasure of going to the opening of the exhibition of the works of art which had been returned to France. There was a gala oh, exhibition held at the uh, uh, at the Jeux de Pomme, I believe it was, or the or the other one, the Orangerie. Mm-hmm. I think it was the Jeux de Pomme, uh, from where Goering indeed had taken the works of art in the first place. A beautiful exhibit of the of some of the masterpieces that had been restored by the American forces to mm-hmm. France. So it was the sort of a nice ending of the chapter, and I came home after that and uh, um, finished uh, finished my final reports for OSS on that particular activity, and then uh, was ready at that time to consider uh, a job in the museum field mm-hmm. to get out of my military service, which by that time gone on almost six years. Back, back to the salt mines. Well, we got kind of left off in the middle of the salt mine saga. Well, this was in, uh, of course, in 45 and 46 over there. And uh, there was, as I was saying a little earlier, the great bulk of the looted works of art were in Bavaria and in the salt mines east of Salzburg. So the big removal was a marvelously fascinating job. Uh, we took them, sent them by convoy from, from the uh, Salzkammergut area into, all the way over into Munich, where they were stored. And then the representatives of the different countries from which these things had been removed illegally, in most cases, those representatives had to come with their own documentation to show that they had, for example, a, a scholar from a museum in Amsterdam would say, well, these two France Hall's portraits, I've got documentation to show that they were looted from uh, such and such a Jewish collection in Rotterdam. Uh, Thanks to the very intelligent foresight of a man named Bansel Lafarge, who was head of our division there for a long time, uh, a policy was accepted by General Eisenhower that the United States would make a point of returning to each country where things had been from which things had been looted, a token restitution of real magnitude, and then after that it was to be a policy come and get it. You send your representatives to collecting points in Frankfurt or in Munich and you identify the object and then you take them away. Well, that worked extremely well and of course the the token restitutions were rather distinguished. In the case of Belgium, it was the Van Eyck order piece, again, the adoration of the the lamb. And in the case of um, we send back to uh, to France. We chose 26 of the finest pictures that had been looted. Uh, these were virtually all from their from various Rothschild collections. 
And where else did we send it to? Oh, well, we sent back to Poland, but that didn't happen until a year later. The, the wonderful Weitstoss altarpiece, which had been mm -hmm. taken from the Church of St. Mary in Krakow. And uh, these were very exciting days indeed, uh, when there was all sorts of goodwill, and the representatives came and lived in Munich very happily, and they lived better there than they would have at home, because there were uh, days of real austerity still in, in Holland particularly, and uh, to a certain extent in France. And uh, the whole operation worked very smoothly. Uh, it went on all through 1945 and into 46 and into 47 and on, dragged on beyond that. And then in 1950, see, I'd been over there as a, as a, a naval officer. In 1950, I was asked if I would return to Germany as a uh, foreign service officer. And I did, and I went back there to uh, Frankfurt and my deputy in Munich where the other activity was still very much in, in progress, was uh, Professor Lane Faison, of, uh, head of the art department at Williams. And uh, we had a wonderful year there, uh, restituting, I think we figured something over three million objects in the course of that period. And when, when I tell you that maybe one was a collection of 10,000 coins, it makes it sound a little less helpful. <laughs> but, uh, the, the magnitude of, of the, of the uh, confiscation carried on by the Nazis was, was absolutely fantastic. And, of course, there were important losses, but I think in the overall picture, the final assessment was that perhaps it was fair to say that the loss, irreparable loss uh, of objects in all areas probably did not exceed 2%. In other words, if you recovered 98%, it's a pretty good record. And we always, see, we, we endear ourselves to the, uh, uh, to the uh, European countries at the time, very super, because we did not uh, glom on to anything for ourselves. We kept nothing in the way of, well, say like a Napoleonic rape of right. Europe. And uh, this was by no means a, a, a universally popular uh, philosophy. How do you mean? Well, the National Gallery in Washington was just nearly dying to get its claws on the Chenin Vermeer. And uh, I think part of the reason for that was that, that Hitler openly gloated over having been able to buy the Chernin Vermeer from old Count Chernin for, I don't know what he paid for, he said seven and a half million dollars, something like that. Uh, that, uh, that Andrew Mellon, the great American financier had been unable to buy the picture for his gallery in, in Washington, but Hitler had succeeded. And of course David Findlay and Johnny Walker, who was later the director of the gallery, I think would have felt it a very charming tribute to have the Jenny Vermeer ended up on the walls of the National Gallery. But you see, it, it, was, a, it was a curious and very difficult case to decide. The heirs of Chernin claimed that it had been a forced sale. Uh, Chernin, on the other hand, is recorded as having urged and abetted, aided, abetted Hitler, Hitler in buying the, the, the Vermeer. And uh, it's on record that he, uh, when he turned it over to him, it was with a happy Heil Hitler and so on. 
But then again, you see, the fact that it was a, a forced sale, therefore that meant it was not, I mean it was a willing sale, mm -hmm. therefore the heirs could not claim it, but whose picture was it? And the decision was finally made that it should go to the uh, Kunsthistorisches Museum, the National State Museum of Vienna, of Austria, and of course that's fine. But you see, it led other people think, well, hell, if it belonged to Hitler, why, doesn't it, why don't we, the conquering heroes, uh, get it for ourselves? So there's some logic in that thought, but it would have caused, of course, endless ill will if a picture of mm -hmm. that fame had, had come to this country, or gone to any country except the one which it had always been for many, many years. And, but there were not too many problems of that kind. Were there any works that... Um couldn't be, the origins couldn't be traced. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, my Lord. You see, there was, uh, you see the, uh, the solution to all that, I, I don't quite know. For example, there were, there was a considerable corpus of pictures and objects of various kinds from uh, rather nondescript uh, uh, Jewish collections in, in Vienna. No heirs to be found. Well, what do you do with things like that? I think the ultimate decision there was that these objects were simply turned over to the country of origin. I don't mean the origin of the artist, but right. say if, if there were five or six untraceable Jewish collections in Vienna, then some art facility in, in the government in Vienna would be responsible for the ultimate disposal of that. Uh, we had all sorts of talks about that. What we do, there were, for example, there were marvelous uh, book, library books, uh, books of, of, of tremendous value that had been uh, put together by that Einsatzstab Rosenberg, which was trying to resolve some, come some conclusions about the theory of the whole development of the, of the Jewish problem. And uh, these, many of these things were not, re were not returnable, so they simply had to be turned over eventually to some responsible agency, not to an individual. Yes. The great Rothschild libraries in Frankfurt were very much a, a heavy problem at one time because uh, some members of, of, of the American military government wanted to distribute these books to the prisoners of war camps. But they weren't that kind. They weren't copies of Uncle Tom's Cabin and Mark Twain and Uncle Barry Finn. These were interesting and important treatises on various scientific subjects, and once they had been released to go to a prisoner of war camp library, they would never have been recovered, I'm sure. We had a big fight about that, and we, we did, when I say we, I mean our, our, our section of the government put over our point that, that, that we felt just as much compassion for the, for the poor people in the prisoner of war camps and the, and the detention camps of the displaced Jewish people at the end of the war who hadn't been properly rehabilitated and redistributed, uh, gotten to their own homeland. Uh, this wasn't going to uh, ameliorate their problem. But it was, a, it was a wonderful time to be over there. And of course the contrast between being there in 1945 and 46, when we were the Lord's creation, and being there in, and again in 1551 when the civilian population was a very different situation, the contrast is quite extraordinary. But, uh, I made many warm friends in Germany, and I, I 
get back as frequently as I can because I still like to keep up some of those things. Well, you were decorated, um, I, I gather, by the both the French and Dutch governments. By the French and Dutch, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, that was partly because of the things we got back to uh, France and, of course, the the other thing was the, the Dutch loan. There again, we, we couldn't pick out any particular single thing like the Ghent altarpiece, so we sent, in that case, 25 or 30 absolutely top quality pictures back to home. And, uh, and they appreciated it. Well, I bet they did. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a wonderful time. Uh, I always loved what, when, when the, uh, Hamilton Coulter, who was a naval officer, commissioned to take things back to the Jeu de Pomme in Paris. These beautiful, 26 beautiful pictures. One of the most ravishing Chardin's uh, and one of the most beautiful Fragonard you've ever seen that came from Auvergne and Edmond de Rothschild. And a, a Madame Kahn, who was a curatorial type who received the shipment, looked at and said, But where are the frames? <laughs> and my friend Coder said to me afterwards, I told Madame Kahn what she could do with those frames. <laughs> That's incredible. I wonder if that's apocryphal, but it makes a great No, story. I don't think so. No, because Ham Coder was, could hardly wait to get back to Frankfurt to tell me about this. He said, God damn that. Can you imagine? I said, yes, I can imagine very well, because that's absolutely true to, to French spirit. <laughs> I wrote that up in my... My little chronicle. You should, yeah, you should mention your book uh, in connection with this whole experience. Oh, well, well, I'll tell you this funny thing about the book thing. Uh, while I was over there, I had a letter from a, an old friend of mine who was, happened to be a, uh, an agent for Bob's Merrill Publishing House in my home state of Indiana. And uh, he said, he said, Lawrence Chambers, who was that time publisher, uh, uh, head of the publishing house, Ross Chambers is going to write to you. He wants to know if you'd write a book about your post-war experiences. Not anything to do with the war, but post-war. Well, I wrote back and I said, well, I couldn't write anything about wartime experiences because I wasn't over here then. It had to be post-war. And I said, yes, I'd, I'd take this under very happy advisement. So I got a letter from Lawrence Chambers asked me what I could do about it, and I said, well, I don't think there'd be any censorship regulations that would prevail. I'll find out about that, but in, in principle, sure, I'll be glad to try to drum up a story, a post-war diary. And I was helped in this because I, I not only kept a very careful day-by-day -day diary, but I wrote terribly long and very detailed letters uh, to my wife, and she uh, saved them all. And so it was really just a question of editing this material when I got back. Well, a funny thing happened about that. Uh, before I left Paris, I had the, uh, in the spring of 46, I had the contract signed, and it had to be witnessed. And I thought it was a good omen. I took, when I passed through Paris, I went to see an old, old friend of my family's who comes also from Indiana, by the name of Janet Flanner, who used to write the uh, the letter in the New Yorker called. Well, going on about this business of uh, signing a contract for this uh, a, a book of post-war experiences, uh, Janet Flanner looked over the 
looked over the contract, said, yeah, that's that usual type one type of contract they give to young writers, and, but said it's all right. So she co-signed it, and I thought that was a good omen. I came back home, set to work on it, and of course several other people had an idea about writing their post-war experiences, among them my distinguished colleague, Mr. James J. Rohrmer, director of the Metropolitan Museum. And uh, so <laughs> later on that year, my book was published, and it came out under the somewhat gaudy title of Salt Mines and Castles. And uh, I had suggested several titles for it at the publisher's request, uh, and they didn't like any of them. And so they proposed this, which I didn't particularly like, but I was so sick and tired of the whole thing by that time that they could have called it anything as far as I was concerned. Well, the next time I was in New York, I saw my old friend Craig Smythe, you know, the one I went to Germany with, and he was then, I think, uh, either finishing his doctorate or studying at New York University. I think New York University, was, he was the chairman of the department there for a long time, you know, the art department. And <laughs> he said, by the way, you know, you're, you're in the bad graces of Jim Rohrmer. And I said, well, how so? Well, he said, you know, he is writing a book about his experiences. Oh, I said, you mean how he took tea with every duchess in Paris? Uh, and he crawled on his belly through the mud on all that <sighs> junk in Paris and outside wartime. Well, he said, no, no. He said that you had plagiarized his title. That was the title he had chosen for his book. Well, I said, I've got a message from Mr. James J. Rohrman. Would you please make a point of telling him for me that I did not choose this rather vulgar title, that it was chosen by the publisher, so no plagiarism is involved. Did you ever get any feedback on that? Oh, yeah, I saw Jim, Jim later, and you see, he was such a funny guy about... Uh, it was from it was directed from him that I got the key in the city of Augsburg. He had left it there for me to the castle at Neuschwanstein, which unlocked all of the Nazi records of where the looted works of art were. Because people said, "Well, how do you know where to look?" The Nazis, uh, the Nazis, uh, uh, what do you call it uh, when you make a record? They made well, they made a record yeah. of everything. Microfilm and photographs, and it was just a question of finding out what areas contained what things. And you see, later in that winter of 45 and 46, winter of 45, and again on into 46, there were vast things to be removed from Neuschwanstein. And uh, we worked down there during the, uh, during the winter months as well as in the summer. And it was, but it was all, it's all in retrospect so, in a way, so unreal, because I said, I remember writing home at the time, and I was put in charge of all the, the things from, from the Berlin, the Kaiser Friedrich Museum that were in the Reichsbank in Frankfurt. I, I was responsible for them. And I said, in a sense, I'm director of the Kaiser Friedrich Museum. And you had these sort of uncanny things. For example, you'd walk into a, in, in some of the chambers at the salt mine of Alsace, and see these incredible treasures. It really, it really was something. You know, the interesting thing about those mines in the Salzkammergut, they are 10 degrees warmer in the uh, wintertime than they are in the summertime. 
there's a very even temperature. It's around 65 to mm -hmm. 68 degrees humidity. And the only thing that you have to watch out there is that the armor and metal objects had to be coated with wax or they would oxidize. And also, Lamont Moore and I, both when we first worked in the mine at Altaise for three weeks, we had perfectly terrible summer colds and just were lousy. They were gone in about two days in the saline atmosphere of the mine. It's, it's really quite extraordinary. And of course, it's, it's, it's like it's, taking the cure or something. Yeah, really. And it's, of course, just the, about the most beautiful country in the world, you know, all that uh, Austrian Alps. Mm -hmm. oh, we had right there in Hitler's stronghold. Too. He sure picked pretty places. Uh, at that time, you know, Ted Rousseau, who was later the curator of paintings of the Metropolitan, Ted Rousseau and Lane Faison, who later went with me to Germany in 1551, but in 45 and 46, Lane was a naval officer, he was OSS, so was Ted uh, Rousseau, and so was uh, Jim Plough, who was a member of the Sachs family, who was at that time, had been director of a, a museum of contemporary art in Boston. And Jim, those three were a little team, and they interviewed the Nazi war, so-called Nazi war criminals, the big dealers who had been responsible for selling things to Goering and all that. And Lane wrote the definitive report on that, which is very interesting. But the, and of course, it was extraordinary. Here, George Stout and Lamont Moore and I were up there on the salt mine. We lived pretty well in a nice little kind of cavern-like place. We had comfortable bedrooms and all that. But the food was just plain beans out of the can and not much more. But when we went down to House 71, which is the name of this little stronghold where, where Faison and Rousseau and uh, Plough lived, uh, oh, Rousseau looked like a jaunty uh, member of a super Nazi corps. I remember Lincoln Kirstein once said to me, aren't you glad he's on our side? And of course he did look like a terribly blasé Nazi officer. At any rate, they, they lived very well there, because I remember when Jordan and Lamont and I were invited to lunch, we really felt like country cousins, because we were just kind of hard work, we sweat like horses, worked all day long. We got down here to this elegant little uh, Austrian chalet, and uh, I remember when, they were, when we were having lunch, uh, Ted uh, told the maid, it's the wrong kind of glass for the mine. Well, hell, we hadn't even seen wine, let alone a proper <laughs> So they lived very well down there. But it was an interesting contrast, because we were, not that we were feeling sorry for ourselves, we were, we were not any long-suffering pioneers, but our, our regime was a much more Spartan one compared to the rather elegant bureaucratic life that they were leading. Down there. <laughs> that's, that's an interesting... Concept. But you know, that whole thing turned out to be a sort of a far-reaching and... A, devoted uh, club. Everybody who had been in that one way or another, whether they had somehow they had their differences in professional life uh, uh, in peacetime, they were all brought together by this joint activity. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it, was a, it was an interesting bond. And uh, afterwards, the French government did give, uh, give some of us the Legion of Honor, and, uh, but the government felt they couldn't afford to pay for uh, the decorations they were too expensive. So dear old David Vey, whose pictures and collections we had returned, bought them all and gave them to the individual officer. So our individual decorations were a personal gift from him. What was your unit called, or what was the group called? 
to have a special yeah, name sure. besides the, recoverers the, of our tribe. Oh God, the, the trick name, slang name was the Venus Fixers. The Venus Fixers. But it was the, uh, the, the uh, section of, 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 section of G5, which was e economics. Uh, archives and archives. Oh, God, I thought I'd forget that. Got it right here. Oh, monument. I think monuments are arts and archives. What did we call this thing? Well, they have your own book. The only one I've got. You know, this thing I can't get anymore. You've seen this. No, I'll lend it to you. I trust you if you want to read it. I think it's kind of interesting, to tell you the truth. Well, we were, of course, first of all, here we are. The orders directed me to report to SHAPE, that's Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Forces, for duty with the Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives Section G5 and additional duty with the Allied Control Council of Germany. No wonder you can't remember it. That's, no, that's sure. a lot. One of old legions just reference. I don't know why I had these single down. Well, I think, I think that about covers it for the afternoon. So. Well, I pretty much... I thank you. The archives thanks you.